Well, hey, church, I am so glad to be able to speak here today. This is actually probably the closest I'll be in two places at one time. I have the privilege of speaking this weekend here, and I'm speaking on Sunday live at Greencastle. So uh, that'll be a lot of fun. Um, We're here halfway through the All Things New series, our teaching series on the book of the Revelation. Hopefully you're enjoying this as much as we are teaching it. Uh, A few weeks ago, my wife was away for the weekend on a work trip. And so with me and my youngest son, Kobe, we had a guy's weekend and uh, we had a wing night and we watched some movies. And my son also took this opportunity to park his car in the garage where my wife usually parks. Okay, He was big stuff that weekend. Uh, There's plenty of room for his Mini Cooper. And he actually kind of parked a little closer to the outside wall, which is where the door to the garage was. And um, I took out the garbage at one point and came back in and the door must have touched his car and the alarm went off, scared me half to death. And my ears were like literally throbbing. It was so loud inside the garage. I was running inside the house as he was coming out with the keys to shut the whole thing down. Uh, Note to self, don't touch Kobe's car. The alarm will go off. It was so loud. Unbelievable. Well, I was thinking about that, and it makes sense because that's exactly what alarms are designed to do, aren't they? Whether it's a car alarm or a smoke alarm or an alarm clock, does anyone really use those anymore? It's all kind of on our phone. No matter what alarm it is, they are designed to alert people that something isn't right, something's wrong, something needs addressed, or at the very least, wake up and give your full attention. (laughs) Well, all that to say, uh, we're at this part in the book of the Revelation where the seven trumpets are sounding. What are they all about? I believe they are alarms telling God's people that the world and the world that something isn't right. Something's wrong. Something needs addressed or at the very least, wake up, wake up and give God your full attention. I believe the trumpets are warnings of God's pending judgment. It's coming, and we got to be ready for it. And believe it or not, the seven trumpets are actually signs of God's mercy. How's that? Well, notice he didn't actually completely wipe out the earth, if you read through this passage in these chapters we're talking about. It's actually, he mentions part uh, judgment. It's partial judgment. The the fraction one-third is repeated over and over throughout this passage, and... uh, That is a sign that it's not the whole thing. The whole judgment has not arrived. Why? So that the rest of the people can see it and turn their lives to God. So let's recap the trumpets real quick. The first four trumpets. Creation is actually going haywire. (laughs) And you have to ask the question, is it literally going to be hail, fire, mixed with blood? (laughs) Will it literally be a mountain thrown into the sea? A star falling into the rivers and streams, or the sun, the moon, and the stars partially going dark. It could be, but chances are it's symbolic language, which is what most of Revelation is, to show us how creation is just going to be falling apart. Are we seeing that in our day? That's the big question. We very well could be seeing hurricanes and natural disasters Or perhaps, if you think about it, when this happens, it could get worse. Are you ready for that? And then trumpets five and six, 
Locusts coming from the abyss, torturing those without the seal of God on their forehead. And then a hideous horde of an army that are unleashed to kill the people. Again, is this literally we're supposed to take this? Well, it could be, but what if these are all about the forces of hell being unleashed on the earth like never before? Again, you have to think about it. Are we seeing this today? It would seem like there's some kind of evil influence upon our world. Would you agree? It could intensify, though, church. Be ready for that when the time of the trumpets are sounding. The trumpets were alarms or warnings of God's pending judgment. But you know what's discouraging? Even with all of these alarms going off, how do the people respond? Check this out in chapter 9, verses 20 to 21. Here's what it says. The rest of mankind were not only were not killed by these plagues, still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons, the idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. That's discouraging. With all of these signs going on, they still did not repent. So what are we supposed to do as the church? And how are we supposed to do it? (laughs) That's the question for us today, which brings us to our chapters, our main text for this morning. Chapters 10, 11, and 12, which I believe are the answers to the question, what are we supposed to be doing? and How are we supposed to be doing it before the seventh trumpet sounds? Here's the nutshell version. I'm going to give you the, the that version of it before we dive in and, and get specific. But in chapter 10, it's all about a mighty angel with an open scroll. Remember, the seals to the scroll are open at this point. And it comes to John, and John asks the angel to see the scroll. And the angel tells him to eat it. I mean, like, no salad dressing, no dipping sauce, just eat it, Okay. And then the prophecy, to prophesy about that message inside the scroll. In chapter 11, John was given a measuring rod to measure the temple. And then two witnesses arrive. They're killed and the world rejoices because their message was actually a terror to them. But the two witnesses, they come back to life. And everyone then is filled with fear. And God takes them home. And then the seventh trumpet sounds. What's that mean? It means that God's kingdom arrives here on the earth. And then John, I believe, was given a vision in chapter 12 about a woman, a son, and a dragon. It's almost like the Christmas story, but from a little darker perspective. It's an allegory of the the cosmic spiritual battle in the past, what was happening in John's generation and in ours, And what will happen, spiritually speaking, in the future? Are you ready to dive into this today? Stay with me. Buckle up. Uh, What are we supposed to be doing? And how are we supposed to be a faithful witness? Let's unpack it a little bit here today. Chapter 10. The scroll that was given to John is symbolic. Uh, We can understand what we're supposed to do by looking at how John responded. What did he do? John ate the scroll. And it tasted sweet. But then it turns sour in his stomach. Verse 10. What's the scroll? It's a symbol for the message. 
Specifically, a message of warning and repentance because God's judgment is coming. We know it. And that message sounds sweet to us, those who believe in God and trust in God. Finally, God is doing something about all the injustice in the world. His judgment has come. But that message, it turns sour in our stomach. What's that mean? The message isn't meant to be kept to ourselves. We must spew it out. John was told this in verse 11. You must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Get the word out, John. One word stood out to me in that verse. It's the word again. (laughs) Prophesy again, John. I know you prophesied before, but do it again. They're not listening. Church, are you listening? Are you listening to the revelation? Are you listening to the message? I believe we give up way too easy. When we have a message to share, uh, we keep it to ourselves or, or we're not very persistent with it. And the message dies. I think we need to keep on preaching. I think we need to keep on spewing truth and living truth with our lives. I believe the corrupt world that we live in, it needs a persistent church. That's you and me. And like John, we have a message to share. What the world needs to repent isn't more warning signs like the trumpets. They need a church that is proclaiming truth, prophesying or spewing the whole truth of Scripture. That is actually what will make men's hearts soften. It'll break through the hardness of our hearts. And that's not just the message that we proclaim here on the weekends as a church body. No, that is us, the church, living out the message every day, sharing the message, spewing truth to those we come in contact with. I believe as we prophesy, as we proclaim truth, as we share about God's coming judgment, think about this. That's not the whole story, though. God has provided in his extreme mercy a way out. We have to share that message, too. It's his only son, Jesus, who took the judgment that we deserve. He took it on himself on the cross. And then he overcame the worst that this life can throw at us, death, by resurrecting from the dead. That's the message. We proclaim that message while there's still time to repent. That is what we're supposed to be doing. And yet most of the time I have to confess to you, I'm content to just keep my mouth shut. (laughs) And God told us pretty directly what will happen if we eat that message and we keep it to ourselves. It'll turn sour in our stomach. Let me state it bluntly for us. Does it make you sick to your stomach to consider what will happen to those that you know and love that do not know Jesus? They will be judged by God and eternally separated from him and from you in a real place called hell. If that doesn't make you sick to your stomach now, just wait. I believe it will one day to think that you and I have the only remedy for our sin-sick world and our sin-sick hearts, and we kept it to ourselves. That'll make us sick to ourselves. (laughs) Welcome to Grand Point, where we try to make you feel encouraged and positive uh, today. The good news is, church, there is still time. We have these moments in front of us right now. What are we doing with it? 
I believe that's actually the reason God keeps us here. And that's why he's taking so long to come back. He keeps us here to share the message. And he wants everyone to have a chance to respond to it. Where do we see that? 2 Peter 3.9 says it this way. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some of you understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Do you realize that the sharing the gospel message with people, with those that don't really have Jesus in their lives, is actually the one thing that we won't get to do in heaven? Because God's people will all be there. And those who do not believe won't. He wants everyone to be there with him in eternity. And he's given us a message and a time, a season right in front of us that we're supposed to be using to share that message. But how? What's that look like? How do we share that message? What does a faithful witness look like? I'm glad you asked because that's what chapter 11 is all about. I believe God is sharing with John what the true church will look like. How does he do that? Well, John was given a reed, a measuring rod that he was supposed to use to measure the temple, which actually didn't really make sense in John's day in A.D. 95 when the revelation was written because the temple was gone. The temple was destroyed about 25 years earlier, A.D. 70. The temple was no longer in existence. So what's John measuring? I, again, believe it's symbolic. According to other New Testament passages, you can read this in 1 Corinthians 3.16 or 6.19, 2 Corinthians 6.16, 1 Peter 2.5. It all teaches us that we are the temple We are the spiritual house where God's spirit now lives. John was measuring us. God was making a distinction between the repentant and the unrepentant, the true believers and those who worship false idols. John actually then sees two witnesses to make it even more clear and specific. They were appointed by God. I believe these two witnesses have rich symbolism. I got to share that with you. The two witnesses were real quickly credible and verifiable. doesn't say it in this passage, but when you look at the testimony of Scripture, all of Scripture describes how we are supposed to use two witnesses. The testimony of two or three witnesses is true. Deuteronomy 17, 16, 19, 15, John 8, 17, Matthew 18, 16, 1 Timothy 5, 19, all tell us to use the, the testimony of two witnesses. Why? Because they can corroborate, they can uh, be bring some credibility than more uh, rather than just one witness or one testament. The testimony of two is true. The two witnesses were also dressed in sackcloth. Verse three of chapter eleven, uh, which symbolizes they were priestly. Priests, priests wore sackcloth under their priestly garments. It was rough. It was not the most comfortable thing, and it was a reminder to them to be humble to be repentant. That's what the church is supposed to be. That's what the two witnesses were doing. Uh, The two witnesses were also compared with two olive trees and two lampstands in verse 4. This is a direct correlation to Zechariah chapter 4. Olive trees and olive oil in Scripture is compared to the Spirit of God. And when you consider lampstands, especially in the book of Revelation, what does that represent? It represents the church. So what is it saying? 
the faithful church <laughs> will be uh, one that is, is compared with olive oil, with the Spirit of God, uh, and the lampstands. They will be faithful. They will shine a light. I think it's interesting that in earlier in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, we're given the letters to the churches, right? And out of the seven churches, only two <laughs> mentioned in these passages were faithful. Smyrna and Philadelphia. The rest of the churches in Asia Minor, Jesus had something against them. Is it symbolic that there's two witnesses and two churches that were faithful? I think there's a correlation. Uh, we can also say, see here that the two witnesses were, I believe, compared with Elijah and Moses. Where do you see that? Check it out in verse 6. Here's what it says. The power to shut up the heavens so that they will, it will not rain. Who did that? Elijah. That was one of the miracles that he performed. And then they will also strike the earth with every kind of plague. Who did that? That was Moses. I believe Elijah represents the best of the prophets, which symbolized a dependence on the Spirit of God. And then Moses, I believe, represents the best of the law, which symbolized the Word of God. <laughs> I think it's interesting also that Jesus met with who during his transfiguration? Uh, it's a very special scene where uh, just a few of the disciples got a, caught a glimpse of Moses and Elijah meeting with Jesus. What's this mean? <laughs> I believe it means the faithful witness, the, the, the faithful church will be dependent on the spirit like Elijah and uh, centered on the truth in God's word, just like Moses. Uh, Jesus told us plainly in John 4, 23, a time is coming and now, has now come when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth, for those are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. The two witnesses were also then killed and resurrected and taken home with God, verses 7 to 12, just like Jesus, just like our Messiah, just like our Redeemer. The faithful church will be like Christ in them. They will preach unashamedly the whole truth of God, which was an unpopular message <laughs> in their day and in ours. It actually tormented the rest of the world, verse 10. Uh, I believe the faithful church will suffer for it, even be put to death for it in the end. And then finally, they will be resurrected and be ascended uh, to God, the two witnesses. That will actually be the final sign before the seventh trumpet sounds, when God's kingdom finally arrives here on this earth verses 13 to 20. Again, the two witnesses are just symbols for the faithful church. It's a picture of what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to do it. But I believe God gave John one more important glimpse into our reality. That's chapter 12. Uh, it describes the, the cosmic spiritual war that's been unfolding since the beginning of time. What else are we supposed to do? How else should we uh, be the people of God and declare the message? We'll find out in chapter 2, chapter 12. Hang with me, church. Uh, this is where the dragon is identified clearly. In verse 9, it says this, The ancient serpent called the devil Satan, who leads the whole world astray. The child is actually identified. It isn't identified in this chapter, but we can assume correctly it's Jesus Christ. 
And then that makes the, the woman, who would that be? Uh, at first, you might think Mary, and you'd be technically correct. This would seem like a darker version of the Christmas story, if you read it in that way. But there's actually a clue in verse 1. It says that she wore a crown of 12 stars. Remember, Revelation is symbolic. And I believe that this symbol is actually pointing to Israel, the people of God. It's through Israel that the Messiah came. And then later in verse 17, it describes how the dragon waged war against the rest of her offspring. Does that mean Mary or does that mean Israel? I think it means Israel. Uh, Those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Who is this? I believe that's us. I believe that's the church who hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. So what do we learn from this chapter? What do we learn about our enemy and the spiritual war uh, that we are in? Number one, hang with me here. Uh, Satan works to lead the world astray. That should come as no surprise. Verse nine tells us that. Uh, He will deceive us. He will lie to us. He will try to get you off the path that God has for you. And then two, number two, Satan will accuse us. That's actually what Satan means. That is uh, another name for him. He's called the accuser. Although he no longer will do that before God. This is an interesting piece. In the story of Job, if you remember, Satan was permitted in God's court and he uh, accused Job before God. But after this passage, we understand he isn't permitted to do that anymore. After Christ, no more accusations before God. Verse 10 tells us, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night, what happened to him? He has been hurled down. The Greek word uh, for that term, hurled down, is the word ebleth, which means, literally, he was bounced. Satan was bounced out of the court of God. And that phrase is repeated like four or five times just in this chapter. So if he can no longer accuse us before God, guess who he's going to try to get to believe his accusations? You got it. You and me. You're guilty. You should be ashamed of yourself. God could never accept you. You messed up too much. You went too far. Look at you, still struggling with the same old sin over and over and over again. You must not be a true Christian. You hear the accusations? If you hear that voice, you know it's not coming from God. That's coming from our enemy. And if we believe the lies, if we believe the accusations, we actually give the enemy his power back. Listen to this, church. Accusations, they only get their power from agreement. And some of us lose the battle already right out of the gate because we agree with the accusations, with the lies of our accuser, Satan, rather than the truth that's in God's word. We have to believe the truth instead. Number three, what do we learn from uh, this spiritual war that we're in and about our enemy? Number three is Satan will try to intimidate us with death. Verse 11, it ends by saying this. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Satan wants us to shrink. He wants us to be intimidated by death and his threats of death. He wants us to love our lives here more than our life with Christ, especially after we die. I realize that might be a tough choice, but think of it this way. Satan will have no 
power over you if you have already lost your life in Christ. Just guess how that'll make Satan feel, by the way. Oh, yeah. Uh, That leads me to this next point about our spiritual enemy. Number four, Satan is furious because he knows his time is short. You can read about that in verse 12. Therefore, we should expect the battle to intensify. We should expect that things are going to get worse because he knows he doesn't have much time. Satan's angry. And he has no power over us, the believers, if we refuse to believe his lies and his accusations. And if that doesn't work, he's going to threaten us with death. But that has no effect on us, the believers. In the mental health world, we often say that anger is always a secondary emotion. We feel something inside and and that's actually what comes out in anger. Well, I'll tell you what, it's not that Satan is angry or just furious. I believe there's something underneath it. It's coming from a place of fear. Satan should be terrorized, not us, when we consider the last days. Amen? His time is short, and he knows it. And that's why we shouldn't be surprised if the battle intensifies. He's going to bring all that he can bring to try to trip us up. Okay. So how do we deal with that? Finally, that brings me to this all-important fact. If you get nothing else from this message, I want you to get this, church. We overcome Satan by Christ's blood that was shed for us, the word of our testimony, and by embracing suffering and death. Check that out in verse 11. We recognize that there's nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus that covers our sin. We try to cover our sin with all kinds of stuff. We cover it up with good works. We try to cover it up with by minimizing it or denying it or blaming it or just plain ignoring it or sweeping it under the rug, right? All that seems as silly as Adam and Eve trying to cover themselves up with fig leaves in the garden. It was ridiculous. And we do the same thing. We try to cover up our sin. Scripture's clear. Without the shedding of blood, There is no remission of sin. Our sin, it deserves our death. But Christ died in our place. So let's let Christ's work, let's let Christ's blood do its work for us by cleansing us and getting rid of the the hold of sin on our lives. And when the lies and the accusations come, because you better believe it, it's going to speak the word of our testimony. Speak truth from God's word. Preach the gospel. Preach it to Satan. He'll love that. (laughs) Preach the gospel to our situation that we find ourselves. Preach the gospel to ourselves. Because good news, the good news has come, church. And we have every reason to be joyful. We have every reason to celebrate. We have every reason to be bold and to be confident with our faith. Because our, what our king has done for us, what Jesus has done for us, That is what gives us life and what gives us power. And when Satan gets furious and threatens you with death, you can laugh in his face because death is our game. Our death is our game. He's got nothing on us, church. The worst thing that can happen isn't death. Believe me, it's actually just turning our back on Christ. Kill me if you want, Satan. I can't lose because of what Christ has done. My life is now hidden with him. I imagine when I think about John's life, 
that was his attitude. If you think about what he encountered, um, as I'm wrapping up this message here today, he was the youngest disciple at the time of Jesus. And at the time he wrote the revelation, he was the last one left. He saw it all. He heard it all. He at least heard about the rest of his disciple buddies uh, being killed for their faith. If he didn't witness it personally, he was given the duty by Jesus himself to care for Jesus's mother. And by this point, he would have buried her. He is the only one alive of the twelve. John himself would have suffered like a martyr, although he didn't die like one. He survived all of that. One tradition says that he survived a poisoning attempt. Another tradition says that he survived being boiled in oil alive. It's a miracle. And he was the only one to die of old age around A.D. 100 at the age of 93 or 94. So experiencing what he did, I believe his message would have been all the more powerful for those that would have been hearing it for the first time. His witness, the Apostle John, is a testimony of love, of commitment, of faithfulness. And I believe he had the scars to show that he was in the fight as a spiritual warrior until his very final day. That was John's story. <laughs> what will ours be? I believe the biggest questions for us as we wrap this up today are this. We have a message. Remember the scroll? Are you sharing it? We are his witnesses. Remember the two witnesses? How's your testimony? And then finally, we are at war. Remember chapter 12, the cosmic battle that we're in. Are you in the fight, church? You have to consider these questions. God is sounding an alarm. It's time to wake up. We were made for this moment in history right now. You were made to wage war and to overcome the enemy. Satan should be the one that's terrified, not us. Especially if God's people wake up to this reality and take this battle that we're in seriously. So what should we do? How do we respond to it? Number one, real quickly, if you're taking notes, identify, identify the enemy's lies and the accusations that you have been believing, and then do something with it. Get rid of it, counteract it with the word of God. Secondly, I think we need to repent. Repent of our sin, repent of the, the way that we've been complacent in our world and turn to Christ. Let him truly lead our lives. Let him be the Lord that he is. And then number three, I think we need to embrace suffering and death. Don't run from it. We don't have to be afraid of suffering and death. Don't shrink back from suffering and death when Satan throws at you. Embrace it. These are the marks of his true witnesses. These are the marks that I, I hope and pray that we would be known for here at Grand Point Church. The true witnesses of what, what is to come and the message of Christ. May that be said of us. Will you pray with me, church? Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for your blood that was shed for me and for all of us. God, without it, we have no chance to overcome our enemy. And thank you the word of our testimony, the truth from scripture 
that has transformed our lives and continues to do so. Father, I pray that this testimony will be on our lips and we will be ready to declare how you make a real difference in our lives. Pray that you would wake us up, Spirit, to the reality of this cosmic spiritual battle. Help us to get in the fight, clothed by your armor, ready to wage war for those that don't know you yet. Empower your church, Jesus, to be a true witness for you until the day that final trumpet sounds when your kingdom comes here on earth as it is in heaven. God, for those that are hearing my voice today that don't know you, I pray that they will choose to let you save them today, to let your blood do its work of cleansing our lives of sin and shame. For those that have been complacent, God, would you wake us up and use us for your glory, for your kingdom come. It's in the powerful name of Jesus we all pray. Amen.